crave it. You sent your son to die so that that could happen. So we're so thankful for you saving this group of prodigals. God, teach us today. Humble us. Lord, if you have to humiliate us today for us to see how big you are and how small we are, Lord, do that. Lord, call people to yourself again. Lord, save someone today. You've been working throughout their life. You've been working throughout history and their personal history to bring them to the point that they would hear the word right now, today. So we pray that they would act on that, that they would receive it. And for those of us that you've called, and we've answered the call, and we claim to be Christ followers, we pray that today you change us like you've never changed us before. That none of us would be able to leave here the way that we came in. Speak to us. In the name of your son Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of God's word, we pray these things. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. It's good to see you. Good morning, everybody. I'm really thankful that you're here. Uh, thank you. Kids, you're dismissed. Nursery kids, have a good time down there. All right. So we have, uh, we're now in the second week uh, talking about Luke chapter 15 and the title of our sermon series is entitled Prodigal. And we uh, are going to get actually into the story of the prodigal son today. And today we're going to be looking at the view of the actual prodigal son. And, uh, you know, last week before we got into everything, we spoke about uh, the everything that transpires in Luke chapter 15 that leads up to this story. And uh, the context is something that's pretty familiar in the public life of Jesus, that he spends some time speaking to groups of people. And one of the particular groups of people that usually seek him out, not for the right reasons, but in order to discredit him and, and to one day try to arrange for his capture and his murder, they is, are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, see him and they make this statement, and we'll look at it in, in Luke chapter 15, the fact of what he's doing is he's hanging out with people that they didn't think he should be hanging out with. And last week we spoke about the fact that Pharisees were people who, whose job should have been to lead people to the word of God and to lead holy lives that were acceptable to God in order for uh, God to be glorified. Instead, they became legalistic people who basically thought that they were better. They dressed differently than everybody else, and their job became more of condemnation, not commending God. They said, look at me. They never said, look at God. Okay? So that's a, drast a drastic difference. The scribes were also in, these, in this group of people, and these were the ones who literally would transcribe the word of God for it to be uh, preserved throughout millennia. And, and these scribes should have known exactly not only who Jesus was, but the message that he was talking about, and they missed it too. They, they, instead of being convicted about who Jesus was, they turned against him and started making comments. Look at him, look at him. He eats with these sinners. And so, the, so Jesus hears them and he answers them 
in the story of two parables. And the parables that we spoke about last week was the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And last week we spoke about the similarities between the two. The fact of the matter is that it was two stories that, that, were, uh, that uh, basically gave the same exact information. The fact that someone sees something of value when others don't and they don't stop until they find that thing of value. And last week we spoke about the fact that although on our own we have no value, because of what God has done for us, we have eternal value, and our soul has eternal value, and so God pursues us. Just like he would pursue leaving 99 sheep behind, he goes after the one. Or just like someone who had nine other silver coins turns the house upside down, and finds that one coin because they see it of value. And so as the Pharisees and the scribes only see this teacher, this rabbi, speaking to people with no value in their estimation, Jesus tells them they are of extreme value, and therefore this is why he eats with, with sinners. You know, the way that you and I view things is of utmost importance. And for a believer, our relationship with God, our personal relationship with the Savior, our relationship that we're being taught by the Spirit of God, and our relationship to his word are the things that should be the most important in our life. And th that relationship with the triune God and the word of God then leads us to understand how we relate to him and how we relate to other people. And sometimes what happens is we will say, you know, I got, I'm okay, I have everything with my relationship with God intact, but when it comes to relationships with other people, we are the worst. And sometimes we blame it on being introvert. Sometimes we blame it on having a more analytical mind, so therefore we see things deeper than other people. Or, and all of a sudden what, what we're saying is that we think we're better than people. We'll never use that terminology but if you have a problem with, with other people, it's usually because there's something going on inside of you, which means that you haven't had the right relationship with God, because when you're right with God, you will be right with other people. So when you look at relationships and you see that they're falling apart, there's something also going on with your relationship with God. And the Pharisees didn't see this. They saw such a, a, a definitive line between the way they treated other people and their relationship with, with not God, but a legalistic view of his word that they missed the boat that God values people. And if we have a right relationship with God, if God values people, we value people. So, I asked this question at the end of our message last week. How are our relationships? Because I'm telling you, our relationships are a good barometer on how we have our relationship with God. And you may say, you know, I'm, I'm okay with God. I just have trouble speaking to people. My friend, you are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away and old things have become new. And so if that's true, you have the ability and the victory to have good relationships. 
And so today, speaking about the prodigal son, we're going to talk a lot about relationships. And so what we spoke about last week was the fact that we should first and foremost see the joy of seeing sinners saved, right? And this was, should be our, uh, the, the attributes that, that, that we have is that we crave to see people come to Jesus. We are excited because remember, at the end of both parables, Jesus says that the angels rejoice, right, over, over the, 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 the one sheep being found and over the coin being found. Angels rejoice. And if angels are rejoicing, people who have no claim to the relationship that we have with God, if they're rejoicing over other people getting a relationship that we can't even have, we should be rejoicing over people coming to Jesus. The second thing we brought up was the fact that there should be joy over repentant sinners. The fact that somebody would come back should be enough for us to be excited about and, and have our lives changed because someone else saw their life changed. So in this last parable of the prodigal son, Jesus now drills it down a little further and he expands what he said in the first two parables to show us a story that really should hopefully hit home what he's been driving to hit home from the first and second parable. That God sees value in people, eternal value in people. That the way we view our relationship with other people is of utmost importance. And that if we do have a problem with our relationships, we need to understand that there's something missing, something off with our relationship with God. And so as we look at this, that this parable, I want us to see these things. And so today we're going to look at it from the viewpoint of the sun. But you're going to see some things. So here's what I want us to see. Over the next three weeks, here's the only point that we have. I want us to understand how the kingdom of God celebrates the restoration of someone who's lost. How we celebrate someone who finds Jesus. And the celebration that we spoke about last week was one that lasts beyond the 90 minutes that we're in church. A celebration that causes you to further look for a way to have other people come to know Jesus. A celebration that causes you to reflect on your spiritual life. And if, if you see a new believer excited about Jesus and their excitement is bigger than yours, recognize it's just, oh, that's cute. But recognize it's great for them. It's sad for you that you still don't have that joy. See, sometimes we do that, right? We see a, a little kid at Christmas, and he's really excited about the, the toys and the presents that he got, and we get so excited seeing a little kid get upset. You, hear, you actually hear people say this, I love seeing a little kid smile and laugh, right? And then we start reminiscing about our life, and then the question should be asked, why don't we smile and laugh anymore? You see, we've pinpointed and actually celebrated the joy of others, but we're missing the teaching that that celebration could also be happening for us on a continual basis. Because Jesus put it this way, I have come not only that they may have life, but that they may have life in abundance. Jesus has given us the ability to have more than just surviving. Jesus wants us to thrive in our life. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 11.
The Bible says, there was a man who had also, he also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. He went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were, given, uh, what were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and I'm here dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field as he came near the house and he heard the music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told them, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because of him, because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, but his father came out and pleaded with him. And he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatter, fatted calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. So the story opens up talking about relationships immediately. A man had two sons. And if you know anything about a relationship between fathers and sons, it could be a very strong dynamic or it could be a very, very interesting dynamic. I grew up for uh, most of my, uh, at least the, the, right before, uh, you know, uh, uh, being a teenager, um, I grew up with an older brother. Me and Antonio were, it was, you know, um, it wasn't love at first sight, but, you know, we had everything pretty much worked out, right? You know, I was the youngest, he was the oldest. I would, you know, we would go places and that, that's, that was the way it worked. And that was our little family. And then all of a sudden, my mom and dad tell us that, we're, that, that my mom's pregnant. All kind of questions came up. I was saying, in, in, in this house while we slept, you know, like it was like, what, what in the world? And all of a sudden, we had this little bundle of joy named David. And David was the pride and joy of our family. To this day, I love my brother to death. We talk almost every day, but he is the baby. He's married with kids, but you know he's the baby. 
And all of a sudden, we saw this shift. I know for me being the youngest to be, by the way, today is middle child day, and I know I won't get a phone call about it. <laughs> I went from being the youngest to the middle child, and relationships changed. No, I was not that cute, curly, pudgy kid. I was the middle child. And you know, the thing, I, I saw this drastic change, and, and, and uh, one of the things that I'm so thankful for is that there's a thread, a text thread between the three of us as brothers that we consistently text each other every day, and I'm so thankful because not every family has that, you know? Especially when we, have, we all have wives and we all have kids, and we still, we, we text each other about making sure mom and dad are okay, and, and it's a really strong relationship. But I'm thankful for that relationship, and I think that relationship is only there because my mom and dad led us to Jesus, and took us to church, and we were involved in something bigger than just a bloodline. We have Jesus' blood that also makes me and my brothers together. And so I think that's what causes us to be close. But in any family where there's more than one sibling, there, there, is, there is a rivalry. There is. And the Bible says that this man, now remember the context of what we're talking about. God sees people of value. Sometimes other people don't see people of value, right? And so we're going to see this contrast between the older son and the younger son. But one of the things that I want you to bring up right away is it's not like the younger son is the hero from the story from the very beginning. He's the villain. He's going to do something that's really messed up. And I want you to think about this when you think about the, the sheep, and I'm not, not so much the coin because I can't see a coin jumping off of the dresser and hiding itself behind the bed, right? But the one sheep that ran away wasn't supposed to run away. But we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. We all have gone our own way. No one seeks after God. We have all gone astray. And so I want you to see that even though we're talking about God have, having value towards people, it's not like we recognize that value from day one and we live accordingly. So here's what happens. A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. Okay, so I want you to understand, in context, here is what, what happens. So when a father, just like, this, this is not like, it happens in 2021 as well, but when, when, a, when a parent dies, they have, if they have assets, the assets get, gets distributed, right? And usually in, in Bible times, especially uh, during the time of Jesus, the older son usually got a double portion, especially if they were Jewish, a double portion, and the younger son would get, would get a, a regular portion of what it is. And so the way it split up was the younger son would get less than the older son, and it usually happened, usually for assets to be distributed, something has to happen. What has to happen? Somebody got to die, right? So imagine one day your son comes to you and says, hey, whatever I have coming to me when you croak, I'd like it now. As a dad, I want to do. I want to make sure I can give my kids everything that they need, and if I can give them stuff that they want, I'll do that too. But if one of my kids came to me and said, "Hey, I know we don't have much, but whatever we have, I'm supposed to get some of it. I'd like it now," there would be heartbreak. I think there'd be fear. There'd be anger, and there'd be confusion. 
But one of the things that I thought that was really, really interesting is that the father does something in the next verse. He says, he says this, so he distributed the assets to him. Dad's in the room. Wouldn't that conversation end with us saying, heck no. Right? But the father didn't do that. So my, middle, my, my, uh, my youngest son, David, right? You guys know him. He's like 6'4 now, right? He's a sp he looks nothing like me. He actually is a gorgeous kid, right? But he's me, and you guys know this. He's just like me. He is quick on his feet. He's a better athlete than I am, but he is a sarcastic and gets as much trouble, if not more, than I did when I was a kid, right? We also share a very, very, we have an affinity for something. We are both sneakerheads. We love sneakers. And I, and I, and I've passed, I don't know how I organically pass this on to my kids. We have the same foot size too. And so, you know, there's always this thing. And every time, even, so I have, I have multiple pairs of shoes. Let's put it that way, okay? Um, and my son also now has multiple pairs of shoes. And the way that he knows it normally goes is, daddy gets the good kicks, and then he gives them to you, and then daddy buys new kicks, right? Once in a while, my son will say this to me, can I have those? And, I like, I, and I've already told him, you'll get these when I get a new pair. He's like, yeah, I want those now. And I get so upset when he says that because I've already told you, here's how it works, right? But my son has never said to me, give me all your kicks because pretty much, you know, you're going to croak one day anyway. So that's a different conversation. That's the conversation this young kid had with his dad. I want everything that I'm supposed to get when you die. He didn't tell his dad drop, he didn't tell his dad drop dead, but he wanted out of his life. He wanted out of the family. He wanted, basically he wanted this. I want everything that I need to start on my own and I don't want to be with you guys anymore. When the Bible says that you and I are lost, I, I, I cringe but I love at the same time that it lets us know it's not that, that we're just lost and we stand still. We are lost and we go our own way. It's the reason why we need to hit our rock bottom to recognize that we need something that has more power than us. And what happens is when we go our own way, it never goes well, but for some reason we still want to go our own way. Think about this. Even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, every story, every sitcom, every, every story on the Hallmark Channel always has a point that something happens when somebody does they, they, what they shouldn't do. We all go, what are they doing? Yet what do we all still do? We all still go our own way, which is usually the wrong one. And that's what this kid was going to do. But now he had some money. He distributes the assets. Not just to the younger son. What does the Bible say he did? He distributes it also to the older son. He distributes the assets to them. So now we'll find out about the older son later.
Not many days later, obviously, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So a few days after he tells his dad, I'd like the stuff. And, and, and obviously the, the dad knows what this means. Dads, we have an ability to read between the lines sometimes on what our kid's saying. So it could at face value just be, I'd like some money. I'd like my money, pops. But he, we know what it means. I, I want, why, would you, why would you need your money if you're going to stay home? So dad knew what he was going to do. Just like God knows the state that we're in. God understands that we go our own way. It's not, it's not a surprise to him that we make stupid decisions. And so a few days later, this, this kid leaves home, goes far away, and then does what with his cash? Gone. He spends it, not on investments, doesn't build a home, doesn't start his own family, doesn't even create an LLC. What does he do? He parties, and he parties hard, and it's all gone. And I love the way the, way the Bible puts it. He spent it on foolish stuff. When you, when you make one dumb decision, it's not because you made a dumb decision. It's because you're dumb. We don't sin because it was a sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our character. That's why we go astray and go our own way. And so he goes to this far country and he blows it all. And my friend, when you look at your life, Especially those of us, we may be in a pickle right now. When we look at how we live our life, we have gone our own way and we have ruined our life. We have no substance. We have no friends. We have, we have no, hardly any family sometimes because of how we are. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we're kind of religious, but we know something's missing. And we're like a young kid in a far country who's broke because he was dumb. He was selfish, he was inconsiderate, and he had no honor for the Father. That is the state that every single one of us are in without Jesus Christ. So, it goes on to say, after he spent everything, to make matters worse, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. So being broke wasn't his rock bottom. Okay? God had to do something even further because a famine is a natural occurrence which is in the hand of the Almighty God, not us. Right? This wasn't man-made climate change. This was God literally like sending a famine. And he sends the famine and then he had nothing. So this is what he tried to do. Okay, so this is a selfish kid who leaves, and he goes off, he spends all of the money that he really didn't earn, he got it from his father, he has nothing, a famine strikes, so he starts to become an entrepreneur and goes, hey, I'm going to figure this out myself. 
it's bad to the point that whatever he thinks his rock bottom is, he's like, you know what? I can get myself out of this hole. I'm going to go to work. Okay? So instead of going back to the Father, instead of us going to God, what do we do? We try to work it out on our own. We try to work our way to heaven. We try to work our way into a relationship with God. We try to work our way into a church community without first having repentance. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his, fee- his field to feed pigs. All right, so he's going from being the father's son to working with pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Okay, so uh, sometimes some of the first jobs that teenagers get is that they work at a fast food joint, right? And sometimes, and, and, and sometimes that fast food joint job winds up becoming something that you like doing, and then you may be a waiter in a five-star restaurant making some pretty good money, right? And in all those cases, whether you're in fast food or you're serving in a five-star restaurant, usually if things are going okay, they at least give you one meal to eat right? They give you something. Now imagine you were working with pigs and you were so hungry, you weren't thinking of that that extra value meal you're going to get for free. You're saying, dude, the food the pigs eat, hopefully I can get some of that. That's where he's at. Think about the level of spiritual blindness it would take For you, instead of going back where you know that there's food and housing and shelter, for you to go, my plan to fix it on my own is to eat what animals eat. And you say, man, that kid's dumb. Oh, yeah? You and I go down our path so far, and we get ourselves in trouble, and we get, we not only get ourselves in trouble, we sin against God to the point that not only do we try to work it, we get so far down in our hole that we want to do things that were unimaginable to us before in order for us to try to get our way by ourselves out of this hole. It's why people stay in substance abuse. It's why people are workaholics. It's why people start gambling. It's why people do all these things and they start saying weird things just in order, if I can just do this, yes, oh, that must be a sign. Instead of just going back to the Father, we do everything else. And this kid was going to eat what the pigs eat. Pretty rock bottom, right? Not yet. Because the Bible says, He would have loved to eat the fig food, but what happened? Nobody would give him any. It's a famine. Pigs have value. And if the pig dies, there's no value. Pigs at this point were worth more than the life of this young man getting close to his rock bottom now. How do we know when somebody hits their rock bottom? How do we 
if you've hit your rock bottom and you're in recovery and you understand this, if you've recognized you have idolatry in your life, because that's what addiction is. Addiction's idolatry. So if you guys, if anybody looks down on people in recovery because they have substance abuse, shame on you because we're all addicted to something. We all have idols in our life. When do you finally realize that you have an idol that you have no control of? The Bible puts it this way for this young man. When he came to his senses. So everything to this point, it looks like, was an induced haze of something. And it wasn't substance abuse, it was pride. It was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is what caused this smoke screen in his life to literally go to your dad and go, give me everything, and then leave, and then have this substance, and then spend it, and then get so bad, you think, I'll just eat what the pigs eat. We all are lost and we're blind. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one seeks after God. We all go our own way. And our way stinks. But the Bible also says, and you have he quickened. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. So everybody can't boast about it. The only thing that caused this young man to recognize how bad he was. And how do you know you hit rock bottom? When you recognize you're powerless. Because when you recognize your character defects are at the point that you can't do anything about it. When you're powerless, you look up. And instead of thinking that you have the power, your powerlessness causes you to look up at the highest power in the universe, the God of all the universe. For him, he recognizes his dad. But here's the thing about when God makes someone's spirit alive. It may not be the moment of actual conversion. Now what happens is God has now given you the ability that you don't have on your own. He is now, and not everybody gets this. He gives you the ability to now, when you hear the word of God, when you see the people of God, when you recognize where you are in this rock bottom state, now you're able to think clearly. And there's this spiritual thing that's now starting to happen. We call it conviction. We call it the the drawing of God, the calling of God. And finally, he's able to see, man, I can go back home. But... Because he doesn't recognize the the calling of the Father or the status that he has with the Father, he says something different. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up. I'll go to my father and, and to him and say, Father, I've sinned. Against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So coming out of the the hole that you're in when you hit your rock bottom, as as you're being pulled out, sometimes you don't recognize where you are yet. 
right? I mean, you're coming. Think about the miners in Chile who were coming out, and as they're grabbing them out, all there are, they're in the stretcher, and they're coming out, and they know they're going in the right direction, but they don't know exactly where they're at yet, right? And so they finally come out of the hole that they were in. This young man was in the right direction. God is pulling him out. His father has been drawing him back to himself. He recognizes everything that he had in the father's house, but he doesn't view it as the point of who he really is yet. He doesn't realize that he's still his son, that it takes more than sinning. It takes more than asking for money for the father to stop loving you. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life, eternal life comes from eternal and everlasting love. It is unconditional. And sometimes that unconditional love is so far into us, we don't understand it. And this kid definitely did not understand that. Because now he's thinking the right direction is to go back home. And I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to tell him, I've sinned. I've done things against you. I've said things against you. I've thought thoughts against you. I will go to my father. And I said, I've sinned against you. And I've sinned against heaven. He recognized there's a spiritual attribute that happened. There was a spiritual blindness. I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. Right with God. Right with other people. Right? And then he says this. Make me like one of your servants. Because I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Sometimes in our spiritual awakening where God has called us and we start getting convicted about things we weren't convicted about and God is drawing us to himself, sometimes we say things that are spiritual, but they're still a little hokey. And well, we may, this may happen to you when before you came to Jesus, you may have started coming to church, right? And you may have started trying to worship and you may have started trying to be a little bit more spiritual and you, and you may have tried to say, you know, maybe use a few Christian lines or dress a little bit better. And this was all, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get closer to God, but it's still a little hokey. Because when you came to Jesus, you found out all that stuff didn't mean anything. Jesus loves you and he saves you. It's very simple. So sometimes we go from being spiritually blind to a little bit religious, and we still want to work. We want, who's, he's trying to work for his dad. I'll work for my dad, because what does he want at this point? He's not talking about the relationship with the father. What does he want? Food. He sees his father as a way of life, not a relationship. And so in the end, it's going to take the Father to show him who he really is. So we continue to read. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a way, long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's the thing about God that I don't think we understand sometimes. God seems distant, but he's always looking for you. The calling of God is without repentance. calls you, he saves you, he seals you, 
and he keeps me. God and this father of the parable viewed and views us and he views his son as his child. We need to recognize that. This kid needs to recognize that. So he goes and he runs. And as he's walking back, it looks like he was practicing a script to say, a line, you know? And the father, here's the thing. He just, the father in the story isn't God. It's the parables about God, right? So the father in the story doesn't have super long vision. The reason why the father could see him still a long way off is because the father wasn't on a porch like some country Christian songs say. He was probably halfway down the road every day looking for his son to come back and knew which way he'd have to come home and was waiting for him. The father met him. Get this. The father meets you when you are still a long way off. God saves you out of your sin. He also saves you out of your hokiness. And this is the change, the transition he makes from that religiosity to finally understanding that you are a child of God. God's the one that does that, not you. God is the author and finisher of our faith, not you. And so as the son is walking home, his, his dad runs to him and hugs him. But there's too, still too much of this story that he has in his head what he's going to say to his dad so i mean it, it's it's like a moment he's running he hugs his son and then and then the son pulls out his index card father i sinned against you i sinned against heaven can i be one of your workers he still doesn't get it the hug didn't hit yet and so the father explains it to him i don't know about you aren't you glad that god explains things to you and in his word tells you things, instead of you leaving it up to your own interpretation, God tells you. And here's what the father says. Tells his servants, quick, bring the best robe. And the son's hearing all this. Because the, the father had plans for the son that the son didn't even know about. The father has been planning this for a while. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with the feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's interesting that the father doesn't take a lot of time with the son to go, no, 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 no. He just tells the servant so everybody understands what's going on. And here's the thing, and I'm going to leave you with this, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about God's uh, view of this whole story. He gives him three things. He gives him the best robe. So not only is it not the clothing of a servant, the best robe signifies that he is part of the family. It not only gives him warmth and comfort, it signifies that he is not a servant, he is a child of the Father. Clothing means something to them. The next thing, the Bible says that he gives him a signet ring. Now, this is interesting because the signet ring is what signifies to everybody on the outside, not only workers, not only community, but even some people in your own family, that you are not just part of the family, you are important. Everybody can see a robe, 
only up close can you see a ring. So this is bringing him even more into the inner circle. He's not just part of my household. He is my son. And thirdly, and very practical, he gives him some kicks. He says, I mean, at this point, he has, the Bible says, nothing. Right? He has nothing. Which means he probably claims, if he's a slave or a servant, they usually don't come with shoes. They, they're barefoot. And so practically, the, son, the, the father says, please put some shoes on his feet. He's not just a servant. He's in our family, and he's my son. And so he gives him something to show him that the affinity of being a part of a family, the fact that he's a child of his, but also the fact that he's there to fix the problem that he had. And this is what I want you to see as we're done. Coming to the Father should never be scary because the Father is always planning a party for you. He's been waiting for you to come to him. Whether for the first time or coming back for the thousandth time, God has been waiting for you. And he wants you for a second to forget about what you've done and forget this speech and this long, eloquent prayer you want to say to come back to God and you want to do it in front of the church so you get, oh, I'm back. That's about you. It's about you and him. You just, you can right now get back into relationship with the Father. Here's what he wants to do for you. He wants to affirm through the word of God and the spirit of God that you are part of his family. He wants to tell you individually that he didn't just die to make you some distant cousin. You are a child of God. And he also wants to let you know as he puts sandals on your feet, he will never leave you or forsake you, and he will meet your every need. We have all spiritual blessings and riches in Christ Jesus. More important than a pair of sandals, we can have a personal, intimate walk with God through a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're a prodigal, come back home. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are bowed.